listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The Forgotten War The United States, the Philippines, war, colonialism, and the martial arts. Part 18 Hey guys, I'm sorry I was gone for so long. COVID-19 has been disrupting my life, and the Delta variant has tried really hard to kill my martial arts academy. I've been spending lots of Jeff hours handling that, putting out fires and so on. But I'm back now and beginning the final stretch of the story of the Forgotten War. Last time, I described for you how a significant fraction of the American populace was growing disenchanted, even disgusted, and definitely fatigued, with the war in the Philippines. So it must have come as a great relief to them when President Roosevelt announced on the 4th of July, 1902, that the war was over. Now, some of you may be old enough to remember when President George W. Bush stood on the deck of the American aircraft carrier Abraham Lincoln in May of 2003 and made a similar announcement about the Afghan war. A huge banner above his head declared, Mission accomplished. But as anyone listening to this podcast in September of the year 2021 knows, that announcement was just a tad premature. That war, as it turns out, still had about 18 and a half more years to go. And that's eerily comparable to what happened in the Philippines, eerily almost exactly a century before. One feature of the Afghan war that you all probably know is that a big part of the American effort lay in trying to train up Afghans to replace American troops. Back in the Philippine-American War, even before President Roosevelt's announcement, efforts were being made to enlist Filipinos to assist in the pacification of the archipelago. On August 18, 1901, the Philippine Commission promulgated Act 175, creating an organization that you're going to be hearing a lot about in the next several episodes. That organization was called the Philippine Constabulary. Now, I've been hearing about the Constabulary from my favorite martial arts teacher, Guru Dan Inosanto, at his seminars for 37 years. As a result, stories of the Constabulary have become part and parcel of my knowledge of the Filipino martial arts, history, and culture. Guru Inosanto's maternal grandfather served in the constabulary, an obvious point of pride for him. He taught me that it was a paramilitary force that had fought the southern Muslims. It was led by American or European mercenary officers, but all the real infantry grunts were Filipinos. He also taught me that the Americans didn't trust many in the constabulary with firearms. There was even a fighting tactic called the constabulary method in which the practitioner of the method held a pistol, sometimes having been allowed only a single bullet, in his left hand, 
while wielding his blade with his right hand in order to both clear jungle foliage and fight off attacks from the enemy, saving the bullet for a point-blank emergency. My research into the constabulary led me down a number of rabbit holes. Another reason this episode was so late in coming. That history is full of amazing stories and amazing people, and one could dedicate a podcast stretching over years to nothing but those stories. First of all, it's important to remember that the constabulary was created by American civilian authority. And this was only accomplished after extended and heated debate with the American military. If you've been listening to the last 17 episodes, you know that many American soldiers, and especially many American officers, hated the Filipinos. The very idea of giving them weapons and setting them free in the jungle was utterly abhorrent to them. Those of you who know your history know that similar objections were raised when the idea of training African-American troops to fight for the Union in the Civil War was broached to the military. But Mr. Roosevelt had declared the war to be over, and that meant no more American boys dying in the jungle. Most of those boys would indeed come home, which would make their families happy and save the federal treasury a ton of money. The remainder of them would stay in the Philippines, but in nearly all cases see no action at all for the years to come. They would stay safe and snug in their barracks while the constabulary did much more than 99.9% of the fighting. Now the United States had won the conventional war easily, and after that had defeated a number of guerrilla commanders less easily, and was in effective political possession of the Philippine Islands. But a whole lot of Filipino insurrectos were still scattered in small groups all over the archipelago, carrying captured weapons. They hated the Americans just as badly as many Americans hated them. They weren't going to simply turn themselves in. Someone was going to have to slog into the mountains and jungles and dig them out. The U.S. government looked to the model of other colonial powers like Great Britain and France, which made extensive use of native troops in their colonies. Some tentative steps in that direction had already been made. A few companies of Makabebe, Tagalog, and Visayan units had already been formed. The Makabebe troops had performed especially well in the capture of President Aguinaldo, an event I described for you in an earlier episode. So the Philippine Constabulary was born, despite the resulting white-hot fury of the command structure of the American Armed Forces. But fortunately, the United States Constitution gives political control to civilians, not to the military brass. The Constabulary would begin its mission with a force of 6,000 men. They were to be officially represented as more policemen than soldiers. The government line was that the war was indeed over, but that the Philippine Islands were overrun with, quote, bandits, unquote. Hence the name Constabulary. The American Constabulary officers, at least at first, were called inspectors. These bits of linguistic trickery were used as a bone to throw to the American military and to calm down anti-war sentiment back in the United States. 
Now, it's important to the story to get a bit more granular about the variations of enemies the constabulary would be fighting. There would still be a few purely political true believers to deal with, not the least of which was the legendary Macario Sakai. But many of the remaining insurrectos no longer fought for political reasons. Many of them could also be described as true believers as well, but their belief had shifted into the realm of the spiritual, the religious, and the magical. This has happened many times in history. About ten years before this, Native American tribes were in the very last years of military conquest by white Americans. In reaction, the cult of the ghost dance was spawned and spread among many tribes of Native Americans. And some ghost dance groups believed that their magic would protect them from the bullets of white soldiers. Only a few years before in China, the kind of martial arts magic that I have spoken about quite a bit in this podcast was preached and practiced by an organization of Chinese called the Righteous and Harmonious Fists and called the Boxers by the rest of the world. Their conflict was referred to as the Boxer Rebellion. I plan on doing some podcasts on the Boxer Rebellion in the future. Their goal was to overthrow the hapless Qing dynasty and force out the Europeans, Americans, and Japanese, who were carving up China for their own benefit. They claimed to their students that their particular practice of the martial arts developed their magical chi power to such an extent that the bullets of the Westerners could not pierce their bodies. As you can imagine, things didn't go well for either the ghost dancers or the boxers. History is full of other such examples. In the case of the Philippines, a syncretic mix of Roman Catholicism and native religion grew rapidly in power at this time. It was quite similar to the Caribbean syncretic Catholic faiths known as Voodoo and Santeria. It was usually referred to as Dios Dios, and its adherents came to be known as the Pulahans, which means those who wear red. I will be telling you a lot more about the Pulahans in future episodes. And, of course, there was also powerful religious motivation among the Muslims in the south of the Philippines to struggle against the Americans, and I will be telling you about that as well. But not all those who the constabulary fought were motivated by religion or politics. Many simply didn't want to give up the freedom to roam the jungle carrying weapons and weren't averse to the idea of preying on their fellow Filipinos to make a living. In the chaos that reigned at this point in the Philippines, business was great for anyone willing and able to kidnap, extort, steal, or smuggle. And, of course, their victims were the poor, workaday Filipino people. They weren't fighting anyone and weren't interested in fighting anyone. But just because the fighting was mostly over doesn't mean that all the farms that the Americans had burned had magically reappeared. Disease ran rampant through the Philippine Islands, and bandits were everywhere, demanding protection money and taking what they needed to stay alive at gunpoint. Just keeping your own family alive was a near insurmountable task. So when the formation of the constabulary was announced, there were a lot of Filipinos who could read the handwriting on the wall. 
the Americans were not going anywhere. They were in charge and would continue to be in charge, and nothing could be done about it. There were growing signs that life under them just might be at least marginally better than life had been under the Spaniards. Serving in the constabulary probably sounded to some young Filipino men like a lot more fun than rebuilding a farm and then working on it. In any case, the constabulary was born about a year before Roosevelt's announcement. Now, the U.S. Army wasn't able to prevent the constabulary from being created and deployed. But they did manage to influence things quite a bit. The constabulary would be operating under an extremely constrained budget. It would be expected to deal with insurrectos and fight crime with no more than 150 men assigned to each province. The rate of pay was much lower than that of the U.S. Army Infantry Private. As a matter of fact, they paid each American infantryman sitting safe in his barracks the same amount of money it took to pay the salary of four members of the constabulary. I've got to say here, I have grown so impressed with the officers and men of the Philippine Constabulary. They were grade A genuine badasses who accomplished so much while being constantly badmouthed, hamstrung, and harassed by the American military to a degree only rivaled by our friends, the Buffalo Soldiers. To put it crudely, the U.S. military never passed up a chance to shit on the constabulary and then grind it in with their heels. They were always poorly equipped, usually much more poorly than their adversaries. There are a lot of things about the way the constabulary was treated that are obviously and blatantly unfair. But one thing in particular that really chapped my ass as I was reading through my research was how they were armed. The people they were fighting were often very well armed, with modern weapons, having stolen them from the Spanish or the Americans. Weapons like the excellent Spanish Mauser rifle, which I described for you in earlier episodes. A weapon far superior to the standard-issue Krag Jorgensen rifle carried by the U.S. Army. And their enemies also had a large supply of those Krag Jorgensen rifles as well. The constabulary, on the other hand, were issued single-shot Remington shotguns with an effective range of about 100 yards and single-action Colt 45 revolvers. Later, these weapons were barely upgraded to cast-off, single-shot, black-powder Springfield rifles. Anyway, in episodes to come, I'll tell you some stories that I think will give you cause to agree with me that the motto of the Philippines' constabulary was very well-deserved. It went, To be outnumbered, always. To be outfought, never. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think, and check out old episodes of the Martial Brain podcast at my website, RP martialarts.com I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions. 
in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the martial brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com.